0: Is it even possible to find shelter in such a shaken world? We're going to look at that theme over the next several weeks in the Anson's podcast. It's November 10th, and in this first of the series, we invite Dan Allender into the studio, and he talks about how to respond to trauma. It was originally recorded in 2018, so now here's Sam, Blaine, and Dan Allender talking about trauma. who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Welcome to the podcast. This is Ann sons with Blaine and Sam, and I'm Dan Allender, and I get to be with two of my dear friends. So welcome.
2: Thanks, Thanks for having me. Really us, Dan. Yeah, I'm good to be here. <laughs> so the topic of the day is trauma. You know, when you get on an airplane, right? There's a, like a safety card in the seat back where you know all complex action is reduced to kind of these potato-like figures getting up from their chairs and making the right number of turns to get off a flaming airplane. And there's kind of the hey, you're in crisis. What can we actually give you that only gross motor functions, only things that you might actually be able to do? And what we want to ask you some questions around is a relational equivalent of that as it relates to interacting with trauma and interacting with people who have just experienced trauma. Because we have opportunities to have conversations with guys all the time about what's actually being required of them in their life and world. and Given what people have to interact with, you know, guys in their early 20s are having to have conversations, you know, with people who have just been assaulted or with a friend who says, actually, my friend died last night. And it feels like there's just no uh, kind of preparatory kit that gives a person, you know, any basic tools of how do you engage when all of a sudden in the course of a very ordinary day, you find yourself interacting with a person who has just experienced a trauma of some kind?
0: Uh, It's a beautiful question, uh, and one that you can be assured. uh, The phone call is not too far from now. Uh, No one escapes having to address this question. So honored to be in that mix with you to begin to ponder that. I think there are three things you need to say to yourself before you take the trip to, to be with them. You know, you're on the phone, you're hearing about a tragedy, a crisis, a trauma. Don't ask the person if they want you to be there. Tell them you will be there. Don't ask the person in trauma to make decisions. I think that's one of the first things that you don't want to do. So if they called you to tell you, unless they literally are a continent away. But even then, there are moments where, depending on the friendship, the nature of the context, you you hop on a plane, you you stay on the phone, or you drive to be with them. Don't ask what they want. Tell them what you believe they need, uh, and that will relieve them of having to make
2: the awkward decision of saying, yeah, I need you to come.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Oh, my gosh. That on its own... That feels actually sort of counterintuitive to me, g- given my experiences, because, you know, a f- conversation several years ago with a friend whose dad had just passed away. It wasn't totally unexpected, but it was still very sudden. And he was in California. I was living in Washington, still a close friend. And I think there there was, for me, this experience of the precariousness of, wow, what does what do you need right now? And what would be helpful? And so, it's the idea that rather than trying to make them make decisions, actually simply operating out of what I think would be good for him feels like it runs against what I would instinctively do, which is kind of, well, which is probably do nothing and not know what to say.
0: <laughs> well, and, and that, that's the complication. You, you've got to know the person you're engaging You know, if Trumper were in the middle of a severe heartache right now, if your father were in the middle of a severe heart, I wouldn't I wouldn't hesitate to get on a plane and, and arrive and be there in the middle of it. There are times where your arrival actually causes more consternation and complexity so you you have to know the person you're engaging and you need to know the context of the tragedy and once you begin to assess that then you need to begin to make decisions on their behalf and i'd rather be told no than to actually explore what is it that you currently need from me at this point so i'd rather say to that friend i'll be on a plane i uh, and and I'll be there within 24 hours. Then have them be able to say, actually, no, I, I need you to be on the phone with me three or four times today and tomorrow and the next few days just to help me think through what I need to do. Let them clarify what they need, but you initially take the response of being able to move in a direction that's helpful for them.
1: Mm, yeah, that's so good. Um, I feel like my indication as well in those moments would be the fear of not knowing what to do or how to offer well to, I think would sort of lend itself to withdrawing and to be like, well, I'm so glad you called. Um, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And I just feel that like pull back for fear of not being able to handle the situation. Once I arrived, right? Like we've, I don't know how many phone calls we've gotten from friends who are like in the car going from a to b like they've made the right choice to go but then there's the holy shit moment of what happens next like what do, what do i offer what do i what do i do now that i have made the right choice of moving towards them
0: yeah oh it's brilliant again question and let let's just assume you've got at least an hour before you're going to be with them you know there are three questions i would ask myself first of all what does this person uniquely need from me now? Not not from humanity, not from their mother, father, not from what do they need from me now? So, that really forces me to ask, who is that person and who am I in their life? So, once you've asked those two questions, who are they and who am I to them, then you can begin that process of asking Jesus very clearly, what do I need to offer? What is it that I uniquely bring? And I, I'll have to just say these words. I'm operating right now out of the story of a dear friend who committed suicide in early December. So uh, all of this is very, very real. Um, I mean, I, I was at a conference. Uh, I, Becky called me to let me know uh, that my dear friend had committed suicide and I literally crumpled on the floor. I mean, uh, my, my legs gave way uh, and, uh, I mean, literally within minutes, I'm, I'm in the middle of a kind of agony that I've just not known for a long time. So, know that as I'm telling and talking about this, I'm talking from the experience of making the phone call the next morning to interact with the family. And I couldn't leave the conference, but I could have been there days after And when I talked, and I'll just use instead of using names, uh, I'll just say the widow. The widow basically said to Becky and I, I need you to come later. I don't need you to come now. But the offer was there for us to be there. The next morning, I talked to one of my friend's sons. And that was probably one of the hardest phone calls uh, I've made in the last two, three years. But I pondered him. I know him. I love him. And I knew what he needed me to do, which was what I wanted to do, and that is literally to weep. Uh, And we were on the phone together probably for the first five minutes doing nothing more than weeping. Hearing his tears and my tears held us together, at least for a period of time. And then he needed me, but it also is true for me. I was enraged that this dear friend took his life, never called me, didn't call his sons, uh, and he needed for me to be enraged. And we both swore a lot. Um, what particular configurations of words are not probably appropriate even for Anns sons. Uh, but let's just say we swore a lot. He needed that. I needed that. So, y- you have to ask, what am I hearing from Jesus that this person needs in the moment? And I think what you'll find by doing that kind of work, it's preparatory work to be able to enter into a situation in which there's not a lot you can do right, but there are a number of things that you can do poorly. And we need to at least name a few of those to make sure that you don't offer advice. Good God, don't offer advice. Don't offer trite platitudes like all things will work together for the good, or there's something better ahead, or God's in control. Don't don't offer platitudes and don't correct what what I'll call trauma logic. I mean, when a person's in the middle of this kind of loss, they're going to say all sorts of things that are either nonsensical or, you know, are not consistent with with what they deeply believe. It's not your time to correct their logic, to correct their biblical way of thinking about the world. It, it's, it's a time to enter their loss. And we can talk a little bit more about what to do in the middle of that. But if you're clear what not to do, it will limit what you can do, but it will keep you from creating more harm.
2: Yeah, that's. I feel like I'm sort of relieved to hear you name those things because as a starting point, it feels it's easier to not do something than to try to, you know, do the positive action. And I think simply being equipped with don't start giving advice, don't begin like, you know, trying to correct their worldview. And I, you know, I think of, I was with, you know, a close friend this year who got, you know, tragic news while we were driving together to go mountain biking next thing you know like he's hyper he's hyperventilating in the passenger seat and like you know fortunately there's you know enough woofer background to know that it's hyperventilation that unless it hits a certain place he's going to be okay but i think what you you simply name of that you can ask jesus of i wouldn't have put it in the terms then of you know what who are we? What does he need from me? This is all happening like instantaneously. But there was the, you know, Jesus, what like, what one thing can you, you communicate to me right now that, that in real time I can go? And, you know, Jesus, who also, I will say, swears as much as the next person in dire circumstances, just tells me like, Amen. you need to haul ass back to your house. Like, your job right now is to speed in this car. And- <laughs> And that, But that was it. It was like, okay, I don't know the next thing. And I don't know, you know, the right time to suggest that my friend change his breathing pattern or he's going to pass out. But I can, like, I can, in fact, like, stomp on the gas and begin partnering with the way that God is going to rescue. I don't know how, but it's, you know, one thing at a time.
1: So something I'm struck by is that in both those... Situations, and when the one you're describing, Dan, and the one you're describing, Blaine, there's a call to be actually more, uh more human and more present, and and be witnessing them, and to be almost mirroring what they're experiencing as you can, not not to artificially generate that, not to like try to be somewhere because their experience, obviously, as a, as a firsthand receiver of the trauma, is very different than yours. But there is this like harmony if you are operating well in it. I'm wondering like. Is there a fear of, I feel like I would need to temper my own, lest it overwhelm them or add to? And it seems like that's not actually the case.
0: I think it's a brilliant point, again, that you have to hear. Like, if, if you're talking to somebody who's really thinking about taking their life, you, you don't want to hesitate to say, Look, you've said a few sentences just now, like there's no point to live. Why? How am I going to go on after this? Don't, don't. Asking the question, are you you even now thinking about doing harm to yourself? Don't hesitate. Bring yourself to the issue. And that's where you've got to bring your hurt to their hurt. Hurt will draw hurt. And so instead of just thinking of it as empathy, empathy is a kind of I feel on your behalf. What what my dear friend, the, the son of my friend who took his life, needed, I, I believe, was to hear I am beyond heartbroken. I'm confused to the nth degree how my friend, who I was just with probably three weeks before he took his life, How my friend kept me out of his suffering, but also he needed to hear rage. So, tears, confusion, rage. I wasn't overwhelming him with myself. I was joining him in his own suffering, and he was joining me in mine. In that sense, It was a partnership. I love that word, Blaine, and I love the way that you're putting it, Sam. It's a kind of mirroring residence that allows us to, in some sense of the word, recreate connection because tragedy always divides. I mean, that's one of the brilliant works of evil is that tragedy does what the name Satan brings. It, it it literally brings accusations. And the word diabolos, devil, is the word division. So evil brings division and accusation immediately in the midst of a trauma. Like when I heard my friend died, uh, I'm I I'm I literally feel divided from my body. I feel divided from what I know to be good and true. And, and I also felt this deep sense of accusation. Why didn't he ask? I'm accusing him, but I'm also accusing myself. Why didn't I do more than what I knew to do at that time? So you've got to stop that process of division. You've got to stop the, the process of accusation. And by simply pouring on the gas, Blaine, you were saying to your friend, I'm with you. And I will be your ally to see you through to what needs to be done at this point.
2: That's so helpful. That's huge, yeah. You said there are three questions I'd love to know. And the first question that you named is, who am I to this person? What do they need from me? Yeah, and, and that second question is, who am I to the person? Meaning,
0: I have a unique role in certain people's lives. This friend I've known for almost, oh, 35 years uh, I, I did more conferences in his church than I've done in any other church in the country. Uh, I saw his boys grew up, grow up. Uh, and so, to know who I am, I'm like an uncle. I'm like a beloved uncle to those boys. And that's where knowing who that person is, knowing who I am to that person, that third question is, and what does Jesus want me to bring? And what I heard from Jesus when I began praying in that phone call was, he needs to hear your confusion and anger. And it was there. It was deeply there and not difficult to bring. If I'd heard Jesus say, he needs nothing more now than for you to listen, then I would have held my confusion. I would have held my anger uh, and simply been in many ways a receiving end of all that he needed to speak. But at this point, Uh, in a lot of words. He needed me to speak for him to be able to find some of the words that would help him begin to move into the heartache
2: of literally the day before his father took his life. So intense. I think of like, one of the interesting ways that those questions can actually really, really be helpful. And I'm really glad how basic they are. You know, I think of stepping back from when we were thinking of having this conversation and the questions we wanted to ask you, obviously the first events in mind were the ones of, you know, sudden death of a brother-in-law, like crisis in a friend's home and you get the phone call. It is the truly like high-level stuff. I I also think of another story that comes to mind in this vein is, you know, when we get texted by my parents like, and they're just crestfallen that hey, your mom's gonna need a surgery on her hip this summer, and out goes out go the summer plans. And you can just hear, you know, all of the all of the loss that that actually entails. While it is gonna, you know, eventually return a lot of mobility, it was they're so crestfallen, and it was, I think, there's that interesting thing of in in most people's lives. I feel like unless I am the close friend or the brother or you know the mentor unless i have some you know sort of a gilded role in a person's life it it's just gonna be more complicated for me to engage with a person's who is in trauma or with a person's suffering but i think when i think of that story because you know i'm a son. In fact, I'm one of several sons who happens to live in this city, but there still was sort of, you know, the appropriate. And when you talk about asking Jesus, I just becoming aware of like, it really will work. And these categories are incredibly helpful. But if you are actually able to ask Jesus for, you know, simple advice or the next thing, you know, he knows the human heart very well. And in that case, he suggested to M&I that we, you know, pick up, beer and go have a toast with dad, knowing what that was going to mean for him. And like, it's just, it really is like sons showing up to go, damn it. But there was, there still is, even though, you know, we're not an authority, we're not a peer, we're not a whatever it looks like would be the one to step into that role. But we actually still did have uh, a response out of our walk with God from the position we were in.
0: Oh, I... It's,
2: again, so important
0: to underline, like, after my friend died, all three of my children called me within 24 hours, and each one of them brought their unique self to the process. Um, My son swore, Um, my two daughters each differently asked the question, what did this man mean to you? We know him, we've met him, but we want to hear again what he meant to you. it, it sounds almost like they're asking me to walk on jagged glass. And in some sense, when they asked that question, I found myself wanting to go, it's too soon, too soon. But I, I wasn't asked to give a, a long epitaph. They were just inviting me to name in a sentence or two what the agony I was actually entering. And what you find, if I can just, again, get a little techie here with regard to the brain, when you're in trauma, the right hemisphere just floods you with images. Uh, it's more like shards of experience and senses. Your left hemisphere pretty much that controls language goes offline. And both girls operate in worlds in which they deal with trauma daily. And they knew that if I could begin to talk, there would be not so much a relief from the sorrow, but that there would actually be a naming of the process, therefore, a growing cohesion, a growing movement toward, in one sense, integration of both hemispheres. And it's what happened. I needed somebody just to talk with briefly about what this dear friend had meant to me, and in about five, six minutes of talking, I I found my heart more at home. And I think in some ways, knowing, no, bring beer, sit and just talk for a little bit, uh, at least with regard to my kids, their questions, their anger, their ferocity on my behalf, just felt like uh, an incredible gift Now, we're not talking about the trauma of the parent, we're not talking about the trauma of, uh, we're just talking about all people suffering. You've got to be asking the question, what do they need? Who am I? What does Jesus want me to bring? And as you address those three issues, as long as you don't do the stupid stuff, then you're going to be in the midst of a world in which you don't know what to do. And you've got to own that. You don't know what to do. I've done, I mean, I've been doing this for almost 40 years. And even still, when I made my phone call to that child, uh, I didn't know what to do. So you just have to know when you're in the middle of tragedy, there are no real rules other than a few don'ts. But now you're going to have to give yourself over to the process to be asking through the entire encounter what is best on their behalf. Sometimes literally a five-minute phone call is a hundred times more worthwhile than an hour-long conversation. You need to know what timing is best on behalf of that person. And you can't ask it. You have to sense it. You have to make risks. Uh, You have to be willing to be wrong. And if you are, I'll tell you, just your heart to have made the phone call, to have stepped into the process already stands you so much uh, apart from the crowd, because most people want to escape tragedy. It's the call
1: of a Christian literally to run into the middle of it. Mm, that's so good. Uh- I'm struck by Blaine and what you were sharing in the story with Mom and dad and and Dan, particularly this piece earlier that you were talking about the effects of trauma, that division in so many different ways, that isolation, that divide in your body and then potentially divide from others within your family. And certainly, I have felt that like that gap, that division between me and the person making the phone call. Like I feel the, yep. the pull to like withdraw and not move towards them because they feel very far away. And part of that almost feels like, in Blaine's story, that the minimizing of, well, I'm not that much to this person. They really need someone closer. And there's almost like, in that moment, that's an out. Like, I can feel the uh, the minimizing of anything I could possibly do. But also, this door that presents itself of like, well, good luck, and I'm sorry, I wish I was the person you needed. And I want to go, dick, 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 like, they're calling you or or you, you've, you've been informed yes. somehow. And so there is, yeah. there's this, I almost want like a three by five card or probably more like a hundred of them to go like, this is the trauma response card. Look at this when something has happened or when you're responding to something. And the first part is like this isolation division, move towards, move towards, move towards however you can. And I, these are just, I feel like that, that, Isolated division piece feels so huge because I I may not I'm not a counselor. I'm not a I'm not someone who knows and is prepared for every potential source of pain that someone could experience in life. And so therefore I feel like I could be so ill equipped to move towards people. You're like, oh my gosh, if only someone who really knew how to handle grief and families and father figures were here to handle this one. And yet it's got to be somebody and there's got to be something that holds true for what you can bring. And so I, there's just something about that that I'm encouraged by in this moment to like name some of the real issues being this isolation well, piece. I,
0: to me, I don't understand because I my voice, singing voice is so cacophonous, just absolutely an assault to the human soul. To hear, I won't. I won't prove it. Uh, I won't prove it. But I've always wondered why people enjoy being part of a choir. Hmm. You know, if there are fifty voices, hundred voices, like nobody can hear your voice. It's all blended in. Yet, obviously, for a person who has a lovely voice, being part of creating beauty is such a joy. So I don't care whether or not you're one of 50 who's making the phone call, uh, one of a hundred who are making the phone call, you're part of a choir. And even if your voice is not that, you're not gonna sing a solo, uh, fine, bring your voice. So I think the harder tragedy is where you hear someone has suffered And maybe you're close, but not that close, you're not family, you're not dear, dear friends. What do you do? And that's, again, an important category to go. No, you're part of the choir. And so if you've got their number in your phone, like I don't have that many phone numbers because the phone numbers I keep are the phone numbers that mean something to me. Uh, And so if you're on my phone, you're going to get a call. Uh, if I know that something's gone on in your life, or at least I'm going to engage with your world in a way in which I want to eventually speak. And just, I I, I wondered, uh, my father was one of the first major persons in my life who died. And I could not believe how important it was to get notes from people. Uh, What I thought to be an uh, utterly useless phenomena, probably generated by Hallmark, uh, was the notion of a sympathy card. They were important to the nth degree to have somebody put in writing even a sentence like, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you, I know you're going through hard days. I I would hold those cards and sometimes simply filter through them a second and third time, because I needed that sense of a choir singing with me my own lament. Uh, So, you always have a place in tragedy. But once you begin to answer that first question, who is the person? Second question, who am I in their life? Third, what does Jesus want me to bring in this moment? Those questions bring you again to some action that communicates to that person, I am for you and I am with you. Those are two separate realities.
2: Yeah, it's just so helpful. I think one thing that stands out to me is that, you know, uh, I'm really encouraged by the reality of you will not know what to do. It will not feel like there is a clear course of action, but it is actually the choice to step in and to make a move towards that opens up the opportunity Uh, For the beginning of the restoration, which is unique to the presence of Jesus, I want to, in a in a specific sense, uh, love to hear. Let's say the scenario is because one that I you know where I begin to experience. Oh, here's the rubber meeting the road, and have had you know other friends ask about this particular kind of moment, and it is you've made the call or you've shot the text message. You've you've learned about a tragedy. You've learned about a trauma, and you have made a move towards a friend, a person. But now you have arrived, and you are sharing a room together. You're sit, or you're you know you're sitting over a table. Are there you know things that a person can bear in mind with kinds of questions that are and are not helpful? Or you know what to- because just to give a specific example, Sam mentioned this caller or- earlier, but you know friend in another state, you know, experiencing a crisis. A mutual friend was in his car on his way to go be with this person. And he calls me to kind of go, Hey, listen, I've talked to him. I'm on my way. What do I say? What do I do when we're, when I'm actually in the room? Like we're going to spend most of the night together. Is there anything that I need to know? And I think that to some extent Everyone has experienced some variation of that question of, "Oh my gosh, now I'm here." Are there guiding,
1: you know, principles for? Right. Let's say that those how people, to have this conversation. Yeah, the people that are going to go, Jesus, what do I do? <laughs> okay, next, Dan, what do I do?
0: <laughs> Since Jesus seems to be on a busy call, uh, you know let's just start with the obvious thing. Your freaking face matters way more than you have any idea. And so if you don't be yourself, so if you're you're really just a funny person, then you really do need to bring your humor into it. If you tend to be a very thoughtful, quiet person, then bring your thoughtful, quiet. You don't have to become someone other than you are, because at that moment, the, the the other person knows you're you know you're playing a role, you're playing a kind of act. So you got to bring your face, bring who you are. Now you don't want to crack a joke, uh, at, at, you know, in the middle of a tragedy, but there will be a place for laughter don't be unwilling to offer laughter a lot of a lot of tragedies bear a lot of absurdity and sometimes just naming the absolute darkness and absurdity that you're in the middle of is relieving. so start with that bring who you are. you're a mess you don't know what to do uh, but you bring something of the goodness of God into the middle of it. so give up the role, give up the burden, give up the pressure and be who you are now. Second, be sensitive to the moment itself. Because if that person literally can't think, I mean, when I'm in the middle of significant overwhelming heartache, I'm in the middle of trauma. And one of the things that happens with trauma is your brain goes offline. So there are times where I need somebody to say, look, can I make three or four recommendations? One, let me drive. Two, let me hear what you're thinking so that I can, in many ways, bring uh, a a little bit more thought to the process. In other words, loan your strengths to the person without it, again, being insistent or demanding. but, But you need to help contain some of the trauma that they're in by being willing to care for that person and providing, again, whatever they particularly need. There were seasons where, w- with, with Becky at one point in her life, quite ill, I tell this story a number of times of going to a, a supermarket where I literally couldn't figure out the list that I knew that I had drawn up. And a person came up to me, put their hand on my shoulder and said, do you need help? That's all I needed was somebody to say, do you need help? And I I literally just said to her, my wife is sick. Uh, I don't know how to get this list. And she said, let me walk you through with a cart and help you get everything on your list. She, She could not have been anything other than an angel at that moment. So coming in. Sometimes people don't need to feel and cathart and, and grieve more. They just need containment to be able to make the next hour, two hours. You'll know when they need to grieve because they begin to talk about the loss. And that's where you need to have that empathetic presence. I suffer for you, but I also, depending on how you are connected to them, you need to join your own suffering
2: to them as well. It's so, on the one hand, I just love, you know, the pressure remover of, hey, listen, there aren't actually like the three roles of the trauma respondent and you need to play one of them because that's what will help a person, but go, uh, no, you actually carry some of the image of God. You are unique, like bring that. And I think the other one as you're describing, like when a person does begin to talk, and when you do have the opportunity, as someone who is whose brain is still online, to maybe perceive and direct a little bit, maybe of the conversation or the action. Like I remember that after you know we the loss of Emily's younger brother, when Em and I were talking, like Jesus would actually wreck Like I'd ask what to say, and the questions that he would kind of go, say this, were always so absurd because what they actually did was like further expose the pain. Um, yes. But it, you know, it was just like God continuing to lance in Emily, like, because, you know, Emily's processing like her ambivalence about, you know, her pregnancy and she can't figure it out. And, you know, Jesus just goes, Hey, you need to say, with care, but you still need to say, Jeremy is never gonna come see her. And it like yes. actually, yes, there was weeping, but it provided access to this place of grief that had just been kind of an ambiguous, I don't know why I feel stuck here. And actually just asking a like what feels like a asinine question about the grief can be really helpful of, you know, are you hurting because you won't see him? Or what are you, like, in this situation? And especially, you know, when it's someone you know as well as your wife, there suddenly will be the moment of, yep, hear the story and be ready to draw out the story rather than, like, create a salve. And and actually just be kind of ready almost in those moments, as you're describing, to allow the grief or allow it to expand rather than trying to, like, run in and put out fires and console. Well, what we know about trauma is that it will numb you almost
0: immediately when you experience it. So, you know, you feel great pain, but you're almost in this uh, not quite fully present you know, aware of the pain, but not wanting to enter the pain and yet also not able to enter the pain. So what you're describing, Blaine, is a gift that we bring, and that is, I will actually ask of you to step just one foot closer to the reality of what you're going through. And and in that sense, you're testing the water to see, can you take one step, not into a full-fledged full recognition of what this loss will mean for you, but at least for the moment, are you aware that, you know, your brother will never see his niece uh, on this earth? So, as you're naming things that are obviously very painful, you're also assessing, does it seem to help relieve? Does it enter into more pain, yet also more relief? And that's the measuring. That you're doing with anyone in the middle of trauma is—is is there isn't a plat way of going about it, but you can also measure whether or not you're going too far. Whether you—and I will often say to a person, "I know that you prefer being in control of what you feel, but what you're feeling right now can't be controlled. Are, are you ready to just name one more thing about this loss?" So you're giving people choice, but you're also setting them in a context to be able to say, is this the direction you want to, and I've had people say to me, I'm not ready to go another foot. That's great. Then as I see you are ready, you need to name that and I'll also name it with you. Uh, It's just the gift of being with them. To know how to enter grief means you don't break and enter. You knock on the door. You wait for them to open, but when they open, you come into what can be engaged
1: at that moment. That's really good. This is this is part of, I think, some of the trepidation, I feel, in entering something, is also how to leave it well. Like, how, how do you not try to carry everything or make certain promises, or uh, there's this need for containment and to like have it be this this finished thing Extract feels so messy to me.
0: Right. In America, we allow people six weeks to grieve the death of anyone close to them. That's what research would tell us. So for six weeks, people will be aware and sensitive. You know, if you lost your wife or a child, you've got six weeks to get over it. That's so cruel. It's beyond measure. In many societies, a widow wears black, fully black, for a year as a symbol of her loss. So uh, the, the fact is, uh, ending is never clean. Uh, and I love that question, Sam, because we feel responsible to have a kind of 30-minute conversation that ends with the sitcom making sense. Uh, no. No. You need to end, and and that's where you just look. Often, if I'm visiting somebody who's lost a major person in their life, I'll even announce, look, I'm going to spend 15 minutes with you. If if after 15 minutes you want me to stay longer, you need to tell me that, uh, because I'm going to assume now there's so much going on for you that 15 minutes just to be with you will be a good beginning. So set parameters. Don't just be in a conversation that ends two to three hours later. That's not helpful to the person who's suffering. So give limits and to say, look, we've got an hour. If you need more after that, then we'll renegotiate for what you need. I'm here for you. But for now, uh, when an hour comes, we'll both decide whether or not it's good to continue talking. That allows you a normal out To then be able to say, and I will check with you, say it's the morning, I'll check with you at one o'clock this afternoon to see if you want to have another conversation. Now again, that's putting it back onto their lap, but on the other hand, it's your saying at one o'clock you better expect a phone call from me. So it's not just saying, hey, whatever you need, I will be knocking on your door. But don't try to come to some kind of flashy finish that seems to resolve whatever the issue is for now because it will require continuity over a lengthy period of time. And that's where you've got to go back to that question. Who are you on their behalf? How much time do you have that you can put in honorably on their behalf? And those are hard questions because we're all limited beings. And even with your dearest of dearest friends, you still have a job you have to go back to. You can't give up weeks upon weeks upon weeks to be with them through the full. This is where the real hard reality is, uh, ultimately, other than you and God, you are alone. And I can be with you
2: for seasons, but not through the whole process. Man, that's really helpful. I think even just hearing your name of both in entering and exiting the various, you know, engagements of a person's loss, there is just this level of moving towards and leadership necessary so that, you know, rather than waiting f- for it to look like a- there's a very clear thing to do, like, oh, this is the very clear moment to leave, but first let's sing the doxology. Like, but, <laughs> but to in fact go like, well, I know that I have been in conversation with this person for an hour, I feel that it is now the right time to say, I need to go grab some pizza. Would you like me to drop one by? Like, then I'm going to go home. I'll come by in the morning. And in that, you know, I know how available I am. I do know what I can do. And even though it, I would love it to be like, once these three things have happened in the conversation, like you can say, you know, the magic phrase and then... It really will make sense to leave or to transition into something else, but simply to go. No, that won't happen. But you, you know, you can move towards, and you know that leadership is necessary. And that even in, you know, ending a conversation or getting in your car to leave the state again, there is this making the next action on the person's behalf, providing like context and leadership that will if you're bearing these other things in mind, be helpful?
0: Oh, yes. I mean, it's the yes of, look, it's messy. The very nature of tragedy, of loss, of trauma is a mess. It breaks all norms and structures. So if you think you can do this elegantly so that it works out, you're a fool, but you're also a coward if you don't walk into it. So the option is be a fool, be a coward. I'd rather be a fool. And so I'm going to walk in. It's a mess. There's no elegance. And that's, that's that sense of, look, I will be with you through this process as best as I am called and know that I have a place to be. But in that, I still got to go to work. I still have to brush my teeth. I still got to eat at some point, et cetera, et cetera, which means this seems so cruel. Life goes on. Death is not the final word. Life is the final word. And that's where I need to live on their behalf, how I hope someone lives on my behalf as I'm about to die. And that is, we'll miss you, love you, you've meant a lot, uh, and you're about to enter into eternity. Uh, in many ways, I'm envying you. And in many ways, as I'm dying, I want people to know um, I- I'm, I'm relieved. I'm sad and I'm relieved. Can you bear with me both? I am so sad to be dying. I'm so relieved. My call on this earth is finished and there's another world for me to enter. So, if that sense of, look, don't give death ever the final word. And so, your ability to walk into that mess, ultimately knowing life wins, the resurrection wins, and I don't have to be there sort of providing you little spiritual tidbits But uh, with regard to many of my friends, the question will always come up, would you want me to pray at this point before we depart? And depending on how you pray, uh, with the friend, the son that I was with, uh, as I said, will you let me pray? Uh, I began to weep. And the first question I asked Jesus was, will you let me hit this man when I meet him again in eternity? Because uh, at that moment, uh, I I wanted to deck him. I still want to deck him. Uh, You know, there will be an embrace, uh, a a greeting of one another, uh, but I still want to take him down one time for not having called me before he took his life. So in that framework, I don't know how you pray, but can you pray in anger? Can you pray in tears? Can you pray with the certainty that Jesus really is the presence they need? in order to engage whatever they're going through. And it's not that I deposit Jesus, I'm simply announcing in prayer uh, that he is with both of us. He is with us in the midst of this. And if that's the framework, then let me tell you, all the mistakes you make will be forgiven because the presence of your goodness and the goodness of Jesus will be sufficient for that gift, for that moment, for them to take the next two or three steps to whatever then is next for them.